Don't forget to rate us on iTunes so we can continue to bring great content to you. Today we are welcoming Dr. Russell A. Barkley, presenting impairments in major life activities in adults with ADHD. Ask the Expert is a monthly webinar series presented by the National Resource Center on ADHD, which gives the general public access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and is the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. It is a privilege to welcome today's expert, Dr. Russell A. Barkley. Dr. Barkley, if you would like to begin. I sure would. Thank you so much, Karen, and I'm very grateful for this opportunity to speak to so many participants online, especially since this is going to be the last year of my doing routine public speaking on ADHD as I now prepare to move into at least semi-retirement starting next year. Uh, it's a pleasure to have an opportunity to continue teaching this year, particularly on behalf of the National Resource Center on ADHD. Now, as the title slide indicates, the subject of today's program is going to be about impairments in various major life activities associated with adults with ADHD. But I want to begin with one warning or one caveat, and that is that I'll be speaking about group statistics, which has to do with averages across large groups of adults with ADHD that we have studied in various research projects. And the reason I warn people about that is it doesn't mean that all adults are going to experience all of the difficulties I'm going to be speaking about over the next 15 minutes or so. What it does mean, however, is that people with this condition are more likely, that is, at higher risk for experiencing some or more of these impairments than are adults who don't have ADHD. So again, I want you to remember, while there is heightened risk, it is not a certainty that every adult will have every problem we are discussing today. I have found if I don't begin with that disclaimer, that many people begin to get quite stressed over the numerous difficulties that have been found to link up with ADHD in adults. So please, please keep this uh, warning in mind, and uh, believe me, you'll be far less depressed after this program than might otherwise have been the case. Karen, can we have the next slide, please? Let me begin by talking then about the various impairments, and I'm going to start with the one that people experience the most often, that is the most severe, uh, and is certainly the most long-lasting difficulty, and that is problems with educational success or attainment, both in children and, of course, later on in teens and adults with ADHD. Over 90% of children with ADHD have difficulties in school, making this the number one area of impairment. And as you can imagine, if they don't get treatment, these difficulties with education continue throughout their educational careers. And as a result, we often find that at least 30 to 40% of them did not graduate high school, and we find that only about 5 to 10% will ever finish a college education. By the way, that's about two-thirds less than the general population. About 35% or more of adults in the U.S obtain some college education or, in fact, graduate from college, and we find this to be far less. That does not mean that adults with ADHD can't go on to college. What it does mean, however, is that they're more likely to struggle with the academic curriculum and maybe more likely to drop out 
as a result of their difficulties with self-regulation, planning, time management, emotion regulation, and other difficulties that can interfere with academic success. So this is a major area of problems for children and adults with ADHD. To address it, we often suggest, of course, that for children and teens, they take advantage of the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act. But for older teens, particularly those in college or community college, or for adults who are pursuing education through their employment or elsewhere, that they take advantage of the accommodations allowed for ADHD under the Americans with Disabilities Act. These accommodations combined with medication and, of course, combined with things like extra assistance in the educational environment, uh, as well as working with ADHD coaches are often ways that adults with ADHD can succeed more in the educational domain. Now, another area that children and adults with ADHD experience is problems getting along with other individuals. Peer relationships are quite problematic for at least half, if not more, of people with this disorder. Their friendships are often shorter. They often have fewer close friends. Uh, and certainly their friendships show a lot more turnover, as one might say, than we see in the typical population. Also, these problems with social relationships extend to their families of origin. Adults with ADHD often talk about major problems they had in getting along with their parents and siblings, lots of conflicts, fighting, arguments, and so on. Uh, and so this is often an area of great concern to adults with ADHD because frequently they're distressed or even grieve or mourn the problems that they experienced growing up with their families of origin. This often leaves them with more impaired relationships with their extended family in adulthood. Of course, one can work on this not only by, again, taking medications to help reduce the disruptive social behavior and especially the emotional dysregulation that often causes these peer and family problems, but of course by returning to perhaps getting individual psychotherapy, family therapy, or of course, once again, considering the use of the coaching system or coaching network to help with these difficulties. A third area that increases over time for teens and adults with ADHD is this predisposition toward antisocial behavior that can often result in legal difficulties. People with ADHD are more likely to engage in behaviors that are often referred to as delinquent, antisocial, or outright criminal, such as lying, stealing, fighting with others, carrying weapons, and so on. Again, about one in four people with ADHD is likely to experience antisocial behavior to a significant degree. So here's a situation where at least three-quarters of people with ADHD may not experience problems in this area, but they're more likely to do so than are others. More recently, we also found in a large study conducted in England that adults with ADHD were more likely to have difficulties with aggression and violence in their intimate relationships with other people. I want to emphasize once again, this doesn't mean that all adults with ADHD have these difficulties, only that they are predisposed to being more likely to do so than might others. Continuing on, we can see that by adolescence, and if not, certainly by young adulthood, adults with ADHD tend to smoke more than others. They tend to drink more alcohol than others. They tend to become more reliant or dependent on caffeine as a means of dealing with their symptoms. 
and some of them, perhaps about 20 to 25 percent, will move on and develop more serious substance use disorders, which is what the word SUDS refers to here, such as difficulties with amphetamine abuse, with prescription drug abuse, uh, or with more hard drug abuse like morphine, cocaine, heroin, and so on. More likely, what they are um, going to experience are difficulties with regulating their use of tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, and caffeine. As a result of these difficulties, we encourage young adults with ADHD not only to seek out substance use programs such as drug rehabilitation programs, smoking cessation programs, and so on, but to continue to take their medication because evidence does suggest, at least in some studies, that adults with ADHD who have taken their medication since adolescence are less likely to drift into having these difficulties with substance use than are other adults who never took medication for management of their disorder. Moving on, we see that by late adolescence, and certainly by young adulthood, a pattern of risky sexual behavior has begun to develop in a subset of individuals with ADHD. My own follow-up study in the state of Wisconsin found that about 30 to 40% of ADHD teenagers by age 21 had had a pregnancy or had a child by that age or had certainly fathered such a pregnancy. About half of them, the baby was put up for adoption. In the other half, either they raised the child or it was being raised by extended family members. But the point is, this pattern of impulsive sexual behavior, the disregard for the use of contraceptives or family planning, often exposed these people not only to a greater risk for sexually transmitted disease, but also for a greater risk of fathering or developing a pregnancy that led to the birth of a child, which means that people with ADHD often start their parenting careers about five to 10 years earlier than do other individuals who don't have ADHD. Now, there have been no efforts to intervene with this risk factor, so it's difficult other than giving common sense recommendations about how to deal with this area. Uh, certainly having teens and young adults date in groups rather than individually uh, with a partner might reduce this risk. Returning to medication, using contraception, and so on might be other ways to reduce these risks. But we simply don't know how best to address that risk factor. Many studies have indicated that ADHD, more than any other disorder, predisposes to accidental injuries. And while we've known this about children with ADHD for some time, Recent studies suggested it applies to adults with ADHD, particularly in the workplace or on operating machinery, driving, and so on. And it's not just the risk of these driving problems, but they're at risk for injuries of all types, including closed head trauma, burns, lacerations, broken bones, and so on. Evidence suggests that adults with ADHD are at least two to three times more likely to experience accidental injuries at home, in the community, or in their workplace. They're also more likely to have driving difficulties, having three times the risk of having their license suspended. They are often likely to speed with a motor vehicle, have four to five times the rate of speeding citations compared to others, and have two to three times the risk of accidents while driving than do other people. And it's not just the greater risk of accidents, they're more likely to have more severe accidents as measured by bodily injuries caused to others or by damage during the accident. Here is an area where medication use has been shown to reduce 
if not eliminate, the risk of these difficulties. Uh, and we also find, of course, in the area of driving, that individuals might want to place themselves under supervision of their driving. I'm referring here to, of course, teenagers who are under the supervision of their parents. But in the case of adults with ADHD, we strongly recommend that they not drive unless they are on their medication because we have found that ADHD is one of the more impairing disorders to have while driving a motor vehicle. Of course, along with this, would be the more common sense recommendations of reducing distractions while you're driving. For instance, not text messaging, not using cell phones. And if that's just too difficult a thing for you to do, then for about $50 or more, you could pick up a device on the internet that can be plugged into your car, and when the car is turned on, it will block all cell phone signals so that it eliminates this urge to use these kind of electronic media while driving that could be so disastrous and increasing the risk for accidents and other driving difficulties. By adulthood, we certainly see that adults complain a lot about occupational problems. They often report that they're not progressing in their careers as well as they thought they should be. They're not getting promoted as much as others. They often have difficulties in the workplace interacting with others, and certainly they have difficulties accomplishing work in a timely manner or getting as much work done independently of supervision as other people do. We find that they change jobs about three times more often, sometimes out of boredom, sometimes because they were fired from their previous job. Their rate of firing or dismissals is likely to be related to their emotional dysregulation as much or more as it is to their difficulties with being distractible or with their poor time management and organization abilities. So getting some assistance with their emotional dysregulation is something that may go a long way toward helping them with some of the difficulties they have in the workplace. Again, going on medication, working with an ADHD coach, getting assistance from someone in the um, disability community, community, that is, that can help with getting assistance under the Americans with Disabilities Act, working with an organizational specialist or someone who specializes in time management, getting assistance through the workplace if you have an employer that is, in fact, cooperative and sympathetic, can all be ways of trying to cope with and reduce these occupational difficulties. We also know that for people whose ADHD is quite severe, that they can apply for Social Security benefits under the disabilities aspect of Social Security. But this requires that they get an evaluation that claims that they are unable to work, uh, not just because of their ADHD, but would be unable to continue to work uh, in the workplace. So that's a very severe bar for many people to have to cross, but certainly disability benefits might be available for the more severely disabled ADHD adults. As you can imagine, people who are impulsive, distractible, or poorly organized are likely to have difficulties with financial problems, particularly with impulsive spending, impulsive use of the credit card, overextending themselves on their credit cards, all of which can lead to a reduced credit rating. So here again, the individual might find it useful to seek credit counseling to help with their financial management by having someone else supervise their use of their finances and credit. If they're living with a partner or they're married, shifting the management of their finances over to the non-ADHD partner, if that's possible, might be other ways of dealing with this domain of impairment. Now, in the past decade, 
we have been quite surprised to find that ADHD predisposes to various medical problems, not just these social, educational, and occupational problems. For instance, ADHD adults are more than twice as likely to be obese and to have difficulties with managing their weight. Women with ADHD are at risk for binge eating disorders or for frank bulimia. For instance, about 16% of women with ADHD were found to qualify for a diagnosis of one of those eating disorders. We also know that there is a growing problem with risk for coronary heart disease, and this arises from the things we've already talked about, such as the risk for um, the experimentation with substances, the risk of obesity, the likelihood that they're not managing their weight or their exercise, as well as other people, that they may be smoking more than others. But obviously, all of these things contribute to a growing risk for coronary heart disease if the person is not getting treatment for their ADHD. Now, besides that, recent studies, particularly those by Andrea Cronus at the University of Maryland, shown that adults with ADHD who have children complain that they have more difficulties than other parents in managing their children. They find that they're more distracted, less attentive, more emotional, and less rewarding of their children and tend to supervise their children less often than other people do. There is some research to show that medication as a parent can help control these ADHD-related parenting deficits. And also, following the onset of medication treatment, adults can participate in behavioral parent training programs, these structured programs that can help them gain better skills at dealing with their, difficult, uh, their difficulties with their children. Also, if they have a partner, uh, a co-parent, then engaging in shared parenting where they alternate days in which they are managing the child's difficulties and handling the child's uh, assignments during that day can all be ways of cutting down on some of these difficulties with parenting. So again, I want to remind you that while all adults with ADHD don't experience all of these problems, they are at greater risk for having difficulties in each of these areas than are other individuals. Now, on our next slide here, there's another area we need to briefly mention before I take questions, and that is comorbidity. More than 80% of adults with ADHD have a second disorder, mental disorder, that is, or developmental disorder, and more than 50% are likely to have two other mental difficulties. And this slide shows the wide range of comorbid psychiatric disorders that can arise in adults with ADHD. For instance, we know that at least 35 to 50% of adults with ADHD continue to have problems with oppositional, defiant behavior, regulating their emotions, uh, and are more prone to aggressive behavior with other people. About one in four of them, in fact, may go on to develop conduct disorder or by adulthood antisocial personality disorder. Anxiety disorders are a growing problem for adults with ADHD. Where 25% of children may be prone to anxiety disorders, that figure rises to 35 to 45% by the early 30s in adults with ADHD if their ADHD did not get treatment. In other words, the longer ADHD goes unmanaged, the greater the likelihood that an anxiety disorder is going to develop in conjunction with that ADHD. One reason for that, of course, is because of the growing rate of failure experiences that adults might have in various domains that we've spoken about on the previous slide. 
About 40% of adults with ADHD also report sleeping difficulties. Trouble falling asleep, frequent night waking, early rising, and tiredness the next day are all reported more often by adults than we see. A small percentage, but a significant group, may have difficulty with restless leg syndrome. And certainly we find sleep apnea is overrepresented in adults with ADHD. So if this is the case, we would certainly recommend that these adults seek out a sleep evaluation at a certified sleep lab uh, in order to get recommendations from medical professionals about how best to deal with the sleeping difficulties. Nearly half of adults with ADHD have learning problems, such as problems with reading, spelling, math, written expression, or comprehension of what they read or what they hear. And here again, they can seek assistance through learning disability resource programs that are available in communities for adults that may have learning disabilities. This is an area in which medication is not likely to be particularly useful because we have found that these medications do not deal with the reading or math difficulties such adults may have. They do, however, improve comprehension of what people read or what they listen to. I've mentioned substance use disorder, so I won't go back and discuss that again, but that's yet another comorbid condition for a subset of adults with ADHD. And then finally, of course, there is the risk for mood disorders. 25 to 35% of adults with ADHD complain of mild depression, known as dysthymia, and a smaller percentage go on to have frank major depressive disorder. An even smaller percentage, perhaps 4 to 6%, may well have bipolar disorder in conjunction with their ADHD, but that's not quite as common as it was once believed. Nonetheless, this is all to say that adults with ADHD are much more likely to have another mental disorder, and that mental disorder is going to require treatment in its own right in addition to the routine treatments that we recommend for adults with ADHD. Karen, can I have the next slide, please? So in conclusion, you can see that contrary to widespread belief, ADHD is not only not a myth, it is a valid disorder, and it is among the most impairing disorders that are treated in outpatient mental health clinics. And by that, I mean that more adults with ADHD experience these impairments. The impairments they have in each domain are more severe and they are more likely to have numerous impairments across these domains than are adults with other mental disorders, such as anxiety disorders, depression, learning disorders, relationship problems, and so on. So quite, uh, I think, surprisingly, ADHD can be viewed now as a very impairing disorder, if not a public health disorder. That said, we're also going to need to keep in mind that adults with ADHD have other comorbid psychiatric disorders that require impair excuse me, require treatment in their own right, necessitating the use of multiple treatments, not just the ADHD treatments, in order to manage these conditions more effectively. I also encourage clinicians not to focus just on reducing symptoms of ADHD, but on monitoring, assessing uh, the areas of impairments that adults experience and trying to treat in order to reduce impairment, not just reduce symptoms. Now, all of this being said, I do want to point out that adult ADHD is the most treatable psychiatric disorder currently known. We have more treatments for ADHD, more medications available for treating the disorder. A very high percentage of people with ADHD respond to these treatments, particularly these medications. 
The medications we use produce three times the benefit that is produced by other psychiatric medications used to treat other disorders, such as anti-anxiety drugs or antidepressants. And we're likely to find that the degree of improvement is greater for adults with ADHD than we see with other psychiatric disorders. So there's a great deal of hope for the management of these problems that we see in adults with ADHD. Biggest problem we experience right now is not having treatments. It's access to these treatments. It's having these treatments available within your geographic region. And it's certainly making adults with ADHD aware that they have ADHD, getting an appropriate diagnosis, getting appropriate accommodations, and of course, getting access to the state-of-the-art medications that are available right now to manage the disorder. So that said, I think we can move on now and take a look at what questions have arrived uh, for this session. Erin, I'll turn this over to you and to our moderator. Wonderful. Well, we have a lot of questions that have come in, and we've been going through. We have them lined up for you. For our participants, you are welcome to submit questions now in the question box on your screen. And our first question comes from a participant who is wondering how someone can tell someone with ADHD can tell the difference between impulsivity and intuition. Which one is it? Was it the impulsivity, thinking before doing, or was this an intuitive idea? Well, I, I don't think there's been any research on making that distinction. It's a rather interesting question. Usually, uh, when we think of intuition, we think of creativity. And here we have seen some research on this issue. Now, we do know that being a little bit disinhibited or impulsive does help to contribute to an ability to come up with a wide range of possible solutions to various difficulties. Uh, but that doesn't mean that having a lot of impulsiveness is likely to make one even more creative. This is a situation where we see what you would call a curvilinear or bell-shaped relationship. A little bit of disinhibition uh, is good for creativity because it breaks down barriers. It helps the individual be less uh, inhibited, less anxious about ideas that they have, more likely to explore tangential uh, or what many people might think of as uh, lateral or off-task ideas. Uh, and that can certainly contribute to creativity. But as the impulsiveness begins to increase, particularly as it approaches the level of impulsiveness we see in ADHD, which is quite serious, we begin to see that it goes the opposite way, that it actually can begin to interfere with creativity because the individual becomes so distractible and so impulsive that they can't stay the course. They can't continue to focus on a particular problem, to overcome obstacles to that problem, uh, and to get to their goals uh, and to see to their welfare. So it's kind of a mixed blessing. A little bit of inhibition problems may help with creativity, but a lot of them can interfere with it and can interfere with problem solving and task accomplishment. So I think it just depends on the severity of the impulsiveness as to how, what one is going to see here with regard to intuition and creativity. Thank you. Well, you mentioned earlier substance abuse disorders, and we have two questions. One is from Lauren, and she was wondering, um, does alcohol consumption contribute to increasing ADHD impairment? And we have another from a participant who was wondering if you could discuss a little bit how an adult should handle self-medicating with marijuana. Now, we're not sure if the adult in question 
is a friend or an associate of someone who is self-medicating or someone who may have chosen to do this. In some states we do know that it's legal to purchase marijuana for medicinal reasons even though the research hasn't shown that ADHD, that marijuana is beneficial for ADHD. So our yeah. two questions again. Um, okay, well, let's see if I can keep them in mind. All right, wonderful, thank you. Okay, we start with the alcohol question, and then Karen, if I forget the other one, please bring it back up to me. But uh, the alcohol question is an interesting one because we do know that adults with ADHD, as I said, consume more alcohol, even if they don't qualify as alcoholics or as having a substance use or substance dependence disorder uh, following official DSM criteria, they still tend to use more alcohol. Now, this is an area in which it's not really self-medication. The alcohol is known to make the symptoms of the disorder worse, particularly the impulse control problems. Because we know that when one starts to drink, the first effect of alcohol, especially as one's blood level of alcohol is beginning to increase, is one of disinhibition. In fact, this is often why people drink. They like that feeling of that release from their concerns, being a little bit more impulsive, outspoken, talkative, and so on. Uh, and as a consequence of that, they often find this initial disinhibition to be um, helpful, pleasurable in causing them to relax. But of course, if they continue to consume alcohol uh, beyond a, a reasonable level, they will find that the impulsiveness now increases to a point where it actually places them at uh, serious harm for interfering with their social relationships, for losing control of their emotions if they happen to have become angry or depressed, uh, or for uh, saying things to other people uh, that they're going to regret having said because of this increased impulsiveness. We also find that as their drinking continues, they're more likely to take risks, to do things on a dare, to engage in um, other sorts of risky behavior that can lead to serious harm to themselves, such as speeding with a motor vehicle, as I've already mentioned, or trying particular stunts on a dare that peers may be encouraging them to do. So. Uh, once again, we see that um, a little bit of alcohol might be experienced as useful and pleasurable, but unfortunately, adults within, with ADHD tend to now start to drink more, uh, and that increased drinking may well lead to difficulties for them. So if that is the case and they're finding that their drinking is posing significant social, occupational, or other problems such as driving, the individual really does need to seek assistance through a substance use program, uh, starting with their primary care physician and getting recommendations from there as to what they can do to help rein in this excessive use of alcohol. Because alcohol, unlike tobacco, does not improve the symptoms of ADHD, and therefore it's not technically a good form of self-medication. It's actually a rather poor choice of substances. We know why they do it. It tends to constrict their sense of time so that they don't worry about their past or their future very much, and they tend to live in the moment a bit, which we all find to be a bit pleasurable. But uh, continuing to do so can interfere with major life activities. Now, the second question about marijuana is an interesting one because we thought marijuana was more associated with the antisocial spectrum of symptoms that we see in ADHD, but it's not. It's actually directly associated with the ADHD itself. And here what we find is that people who are likely to be smoking tobacco are the ones that are likely to move on and start to use marijuana. 
So let me clarify the relationships here. Using tobacco excessively is a form of self-medication because adults with ADHD do find that nicotine improves their symptoms, and there is objective evidence for that. Unfortunately, they're using a very addictive substance to try to manage their ADHD, and as a result, they smoke more than even other smokers are likely to do, and are likely to become more dependent on nicotine than other smokers are likely to report. So this is a two-edged sword. Smoking may benefit your ADHD symptoms in helping to manage them, but you also become more and more and more dependent uh, on the abusable substance here. So once again, getting treatment for nicotine abuse is one thing, uh, one way of approaching this problem. Now, moving on then, those who smoke tobacco are more likely to move on to marijuana use. And we know that unlike tobacco, marijuana does not improve the symptoms of ADHD. Um, it may help the individual feel more relaxed. They may feel as if their emotions are better regulated because they find that they're not getting upset as quickly as they might have done when they're not using marijuana. But that said, marijuana does interfere with a person's sense of time, time management, memory, and organization. And so that's the downside. So where they may have a sense of uh, being calmer, uh, and certainly more emotionally well-regulated, these other areas are likely to be getting worse. They're not getting their work done. They're not attending to the demands of their day and the goals that they had set for themselves or their responsibilities that they have at work, in their family, uh, or at, uh, at home. And therefore, uh, the marijuana is going to be found to be interfering, not helping with the management of the disorder. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but it's a very complex question, this relationship of adult ADHD to uh, use and excessive use of various substances. I, while it may have been a long answer, I think it was a very good one. This is something that at the National Research Center on ADHD, we occasionally get questions about marijuana use along with ADHD. So I think that you've covered that pretty well and given a, a good idea about what may be happening chemically. We have a question now from Adam, and actually, in addition to Adam, we've had um, several participants who have a similar question, but what they would like to know, is ADHD considered to be part of the autism spectrum disorders, or is it separate from them? Uh, we recently had an Ask the Expert webinar discussing the relationship between ADHD and autism, and so there are a few people who are wondering, is ADHD part of the autism spectrum disorder, or is this a separate diagnosis? Is there a relationship? Well, having just reviewed this literature in order to update my um, ADHD handbook for diagnosis and treatment that is going to be out later this year, um, I, uh, I can give you what I think is a fairly informed opinion. ADHD is distinct from autistic spectrum disorders, meaning it is not simply part of variation on that spectrum. Uh, what we do find, however, is some comorbidity between the two disorders. If you have ADHD, about 20% of children and young adults with ADHD are more likely to place somewhere along the high-functioning area of the autistic spectrum. We don't find them more likely to have the severe forms of autism, such as early infantile autism, of course, but they are more likely to have some symptoms on the autistic spectrum. But again, it's only about one in five. 80% of 
of people with ADHD do not have significant symptoms on that dimension. But now let's reverse it. Let's take a look at people who qualify as having an autistic spectrum disorder diagnosis. Here we find that 40 to 50% of people who have ASD are more likely to have ADHD along with it. So their autistic spectrum disorders increase the risk for having ADHD, but ADHD may not, in parallel, equally increase that risk for autistic spectrum disorders. Again, the pattern we're seeing here is one of comorbidity. Two disorders may overlap, but it doesn't mean they're the same, and it doesn't mean they're necessarily causing each other, but both disorders are going to require separate treatment. We know that ADHD treatments, such as medications, do not treat autistic spectrum symptoms. They'll treat the ADHD aspect of the clinical case, but they won't treat the autistic spectrum aspect of that case. Separate treatments are going to be needed to do so. But one of the discoveries of the past decade is that you can use ADHD medications with these comorbid individuals and have it successfully manage the ADHD. People may not realize, but prior to about a decade ago, if we knew that somebody had an autistic spectrum disorder, we would encourage them not to be treated for their ADHD with medication because the fear was that the ADHD drugs would worsen the autistic spectrum symptoms, such as stereotypic behavior, the oddities they had in behavior and language, and especially the pre-floating anxieties that often may be associated with autistic spectrum disorders. And now we know that all of those are untrue, that ADHD medications do work in managing ADHD, even when there is comorbid autistic spectrum disorder. So again, comorbidity, but not placing along the same spectrum of disorders. Now, one other thing I do want to point out is that recent studies in the past five years have shown that one of the reasons these two disorders may be somewhat more likely to occur together is that several genes that have been found to increase the risk for autism are also the genes that increase the risk for ADHD. And these genes appear to contribute to the attention deficits that are seen in both disorders. So there may be some underlying shared genetic vulnerability, as we would say in research, so that genes for one disorder are predisposing you to have the other disorder. But just some, there are unique genes that have been found for each of these disorders that are not in fact shared with the other disorder, which is why we can say that one disorder isn't simply a version of the other. They have quite unique genetic contributions. And yet, there's a few genes that may be shared between them. Wonderful. Thank you. This is a question, as I said earlier, that comes back many times. It is something that uh, people are concerned about, especially with the recent changes to the DSM-5. Well, our next question now comes from Sebastian. And he was wondering what evidence-based assessment tools are recommended for children and adults? What tools for diagnosis? Um, often we talk about the different uh, instruments, assessment instruments that are available. What would the recommendation be? How would you approach if someone was uh, asking, what should I use? Sure. Well, I, I think um, you know whole chapters, if not books, have been written on this subject. So I'm going to have to reduce it to just a, a very, very, um, I think, cursory overview of the structure of the assessment. Uh, first of all, let me point out that there is no 
test for ADHD, either psychological, neuropsychological, or laboratory measures such as a spec scan or EEG or uh, more recently any of the neuroimaging devices. Uh, but that's okay because that puts ADHD in good company. There is no laboratory or psychological test for any mental disorder or developmental disability, and indeed even for many of the medical disorders that we treat. So not having a objective laboratory type scientific test for a disorder does not invalidate the disorder. Uh, but I want to point out that there is no test, so people shouldn't be seeking a test to verify whether they have the diagnosis, because there simply isn't any. Now, that said, let's just walk through the structure of the evaluation. Uh, and of course, an evaluation for ADHD is always driven by the issues one has to answer. Uh, but it begins, of course, with an open-ended clinical interview of the patient. Why are they there? What are they concerned about? And letting the patient have free reign to cover all of the areas that they are concerned about. And of course, while they're doing that, the clinician is beginning to organize these uh, reports of the patient into various possible categories as to what a diagnosis might be uh, applicable here and as to what the domains of impairment are. Following the unstructured interview, one would do a structured interview. Here one would follow the DSM criteria for various disorders that were raised as a possibility during the interview, not just for ADHD, but has the patient described symptoms consistent with depressive spectrum disorder or with autistic spectrum disorder or with anxiety disorders, bipolar disorder, and so on. Whatever symptoms have been reported of these other disorders would lead the clinician to then bring out the structured criteria for that disorder and review them in detail to see if the patient qualified for them. Apart from these two kinds of interviews, we would also supplement them with rating scales of these psychiatric disorders. And there are two rating scales we routinely use in our clinical practice for detecting the not only ADHD but comorbidity. The first is a broadband scale that measures many of the dimensions of psychological maladjustment. And here we often in our clinics have used the symptom checklist 90, which goes over 90 different symptoms that are arrayed across about eight or nine different dimensions of psychological difficulties from anxiety to depression and so on. There are other rating scales like the adult child behavior checklist that can do this, but we have found the symptom checklist 90 to be a very quick uh, screen for other forms of psychopathology. Here again, if the patient scores high on any of these dimensions, then go back and do a DSM-based review of the criteria for those disorders to see what they qualify for. The second rating scale would be, of course, an adult ADHD rating scale. And here one could use scales like that developed by Keith Connors or my rating scale or the World Health Organization's screener for ADHD that's available on the internet to to uh, assess, first of all, how severe are the DSM-5 symptoms of ADHD. We want to know that, of course, to see whether or not the individual is simply reporting garden variety inattention that anyone tends to report, or do the symptoms rise to a level of severity that the individual would be considered to be extreme, unusual, or rare in how severe their symptoms are. So rating scales are very good at helping us to get a handle on how serious or severe the symptoms tend to be, and of course, how many symptoms they have. 
Now, besides those two rating scales, we also like to encourage people to assess impairment in those various domains, those 10 domains that I covered in my slides, such as education, occupational functioning, and so on. You can do that through an interview, of course, covering all those areas. You can also do it through rating scales such as mine. I have one out called the Functional Impairment Scale that very quickly assesses 15 domains of impairment in adults with ADHD. You can also assess impairment by gathering up what Kevin Murphy has called, conveniently, the paper trail of impairment by getting educational records, by interviewing about occupational history, by getting driving records or criminal records or previous treatment records, such as through the mental health profession. All of these records are ways of assessing degree of impairment across these various domains. And they're very important in documenting that the person has suffered impairment from their disorder. Keep in mind, as clinicians, we don't just assess symptoms but we have to show that impairment has arisen from those symptoms because the diagnosis of a disorder begins where impairment begins. No impairment, no disorder. Just because someone has symptoms doesn't mean they have a mental disorder. So impairment is one of the most important criteria to establish during an evaluation. Now, at this point, some clinicians might want to drag out psychological tests and give those to the patient. Certainly, a quick screen of the patient's intelligence, which can be done in 15 minutes with one of the brief intellectual screeners on the market, such as the Wexler. Uh, but also, one would want to do a quick screen for learning disabilities, and that can be done through various quick individual achievement tests, such as the wide range achievement test or others. Because again, many adults with ADHD have learning disabilities or achievement problems. But notice, I'm saying a quick screen, not a full battery, not a full IQ test, not a thorough three-hour learning disability evaluation, just a screen. If the person fails the screen or gets low scores on the screener test, then one would go ahead and uh, do the full battery. Now, some people would say, but what about neuropsychological testing here, like executive function testing? After all, ADHD is an executive function disorder. It seems reasonable to give these tests. The problem is, is that while groups of adults with ADHD are likely to score, on average, more poorly on these tests, individuals with ADHD are likely to pass the test. Only about 35% of people with ADHD are likely to fail or get impaired scores on these tests. Two-thirds of them often pass the tests. And as a result, you can make a mistake in your diagnosis if you believe that the tests are the gold standard for diagnosing ADHD, because you're going to miss about two-thirds of all adult with, uh, adults with ADHD. So I don't recommend the neuropsychological testing. Uh, if it's going to be done, it needs to be done with this problem in mind that only the most severe cases are likely to score poorly on the test. And therefore, if an adult with ADHD gets normal scores on the test battery, it doesn't rule out the disorder. That has to be done through the interview and the rating scales. Also, I think important to note here is that rating scales of executive functioning are much more accurate and much more ecologically valid than are these three to six hour test batteries that clinicians are fond of giving and charging for, I might add. So the rating scale, which is a very cheap and easy way of assessing executive function, turns out to actually be more valid and more predictive of impairment than are these test batteries. 
So all of that said, we'd like to wrap up the evaluation with a review of the strong points of the individual. What are they good at? What do they enjoy doing? What do they find more reinforcing to do? And then using those strengths as a means of helping the individual to compensate for their areas of weakness and also giving them advice about things such as occupations they might wish to pursue and so on. So that in a nutshell is a very, very quick answer to what is a very complex and detailed question. That is a very complex question, and I think, yes, again, indeed. that that's, this was a, a good answer that has explained it for a lot of people. Well, we have another question, and this one comes from Keith, but we again, we have several participants asking a similar question. And he was wondering, are there multiple types of ADHD? Uh, he mentions that in a bookstore he saw several titles mentioning that there were multiple types of ADHD. And we know that the DSM-5 acknowledges three presentations. So are there three? Are there more than three? What does the science really tell us about this? Okay, well, what we learned is that the DSM-4 subtypes, which are the combined type, the inattentive type, and the hyperactive impulsive type, don't exist. The last 10 years or 15 years of research on that approach to subtyping found that uh, there really is only one kind of ADHD, but it varies on any given day, and it varies across development uh, in these two dimensions. At certain ages or on certain weeks, the individual may report more symptoms of inattention, leading them to be called inattentive type. And yet if we follow them up later on, they're just as likely to move over into the combined type or move back to the impulsive type. So people were changing types just depending upon the situation and what age we happen to evaluate them. So the evidence really suggested that there aren't really different types that are qualitatively different from each other. There's one kind of ADHD that varies from time to time and across development in the two symptom dimensions. Uh, and certainly by adulthood, it is the inattentive symptoms, which really do reflect the executive deficits in ADHD, that are likely to be more prominent than is the hyperactivity, which is really not diagnostic of ADHD by adulthood at all. So it's really in adulthood where the self-regulation, the executive problems, the time management, self-organization, the emotional dysregulation problems are likely to be coming to the fore, whereas the restlessness and the hyperactivity is much, much less likely to be problematic. But that doesn't mean that the individual is changing types as they grow up. It just means that certain symptoms are becoming more prominent while others become less prominent. Now, having said that ADHD is simply one thing and not three different types of things, which is why the DSM-5, by the way, changed its terminology from a type to a presentation. It wanted to convey the idea that there aren't three things here, but just one thing that varies over time. Having said that, there was a group of people who were being called uh, ADHD inattentive type. About 30 to 50% of the people being diagnosed with that type turned out not to have ADHD at all. Turns out they have a second attention disorder that we've only recently discovered in the past decade or so. Researchers call this condition sluggish cognitive tempo, or SCT. I don't like the term, by the way. I find it offensive. And this year, I've been encouraging my colleagues in various journal articles to change the name to concentration deficit disorder. Now, if you want to read more about SCT, 
go to Wikipedia because I wrote most of what is at Wikipedia about this attention disorder. And you can read a lot more about it and what we know about it. But suffice to say here that SCT is really characterized by a very different attention problem, such as daydreaming, spaciness, mental fogginess, slowness, uh, a certain sometimes even daytime sleepiness. But it's really the daydreaming, spacey, mental confusion, and fogginess that people report that characterizes the, the disorder, along with lethargy, hypoactivity, slow movement, and so on. So there's an aspect of hypoactivity uh, that goes along with SCT, hence we refer to it as sluggishness, um, rather than the hyperactivity that we see in ADHD. So SCT, or Concentration Deficit Disorder, is not an official diagnosis. You probably won't see that until DSM-6, but it is a condition that is getting a great deal of research attention right now, uh, and there's a growing number of studies being published on it. And what we do know is about 5% of the U.S. population of children and adults has this concentration disorder, and that at least 40% of them who have it also have comorbid ADHD. And about 40% of people with ADHD have comorbid SCT or this concentration disorder. But notice, more than half of the people have only one disorder and not the other. So that means it's an independent, separate disorder that at times can coexist with ADHD. And when it does, by the way, both disorders are markedly worse but it can also occur alone. So I want to encourage participants to go to Wikipedia and read more about SCT if this is something they're interested in. Uh, we're not sure how to treat that second attention problem. Uh, research is only now being done on appropriate treatments. It doesn't look like the ADHD treatments will be quite as useful for this condition as they are for ADHD. Uh, so here again, I want to emphasize there aren't different kinds or types of ADHD but there may be two different attention disorders, and we need to keep that second one in mind because it isn't ADHD and it shouldn't be treated like ADHD. So that said, I see that we've pretty much run out of time here, Karen. So I want to thank all of the participants. Looks like we had several hundred online today who joined you and I for this uh, webinar, uh, and I want to certainly thank people for their interest in adult ADHD they can learn more about ADHD at your National Resource Center, at helpforadhd.org, at my website, russellbarkley.org, as well. Uh, and I encourage them to do so. so. Thank you very much, Doctor. We have thoroughly enjoyed having you today. For our participants, thank you also for joining us. adults the fastest growing population to be diagnosed with ADHD? Is there such a thing as adult onset ADHD? Get answers to your questions at www.helpforadhd.org. That's www.help and the number 4 adhd.org.